Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is a psychotherapist who specializes in working with young people, Louis Weinstock. His new book is called How the World is Making Our Children Mad and What to Do About It. There's a lot our kids have to deal with these days, and by extension, parents can get overwhelmed with stress while trying to support our kids without constantly losing our tempers. Yep, parenting. It's rewarding, but it can also be a right pain in the arse sometimes. Louis' book helps us to understand more deeply what our kids are going through and exactly how we can help them without going nuts ourselves. I found it an incredibly useful and fascinating read and I was delighted he agreed to join me on The Reset to talk about it further. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Louis, welcome to The Reset. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Louis, I'm really enjoying your book. It covers some really important themes that are very pertinent to um, parents and all of us really about the modern world and what it does to all of our mental health and I'm keen to get into that. But before we do, want to know a bit more about your own story and how you um, came to be doing the sort of work you do with young people. Sure. So I've been working with children and young people for pretty much most of my work in life. Uh, and it's children who are usually vulnerable or on the edges of society in some way. Um, <clears throat> that's from working with young homeless people to running a therapeutic school for teenagers in London who... Uh, had basically had complex trauma and then more recently I work as a child psychotherapist have a private practice and I also uh, run a charity called a part of me that helps young people who are experiencing grief and trauma and um, why did I decide to get into this Um, I don't really I'm not really 100% sure, to be honest, but I've got a bit of that sort of um, 
orientation in my family. My mum used to work for the probation service and then she worked in charities and she was a CEO of a charity for, for a while. And I guess in my uh, teenage years, I had a fairly troubled time. So I right. just really didn't like school. I was getting in a bit of trouble, uh, got in a bit of trouble with police and was just uh, a bit disaffected, I would say. Probably had I grown up uh, it, today, I might have been diagnosed with something. Mm. Uh, who knows, really? But I was I was quite disaffected. And then there was a bit of a moment of a turning point where I'd been out basically raving all weekend and uh <clears throat> my parents were really really worried about me and there was a big confrontation when I came home and uh the long and short of it is after that I actually sort of decided I've got to stop um causing so much suffering uh especially uh, to myself and my family and and just try and focus myself on doing something helpful for other people mm. uh that's kind of one way of explaining it so an, an epiphany almost. I had it, yeah. But it was. A, I would definitely describe that as a bit of a turning point. Obviously, these things are never so black and white, are they? Like it's not like people just suddenly change overnight. And I definitely didn't. But um, yeah, I sort of definitely like that morning when I woke up after the uh, confrontation. Uh, I sort of did this quite childlike thing and uh, I was just got out of bed and I had these yellow post-it notes uh, mm. on my bedside table and I basically drew one smiley face plus one smiley face equals lots of smiley faces and uh, that was my kind of sort of naive childlike way of trying to figure out you know just stop being a knob basically and, and <laughs> try and focus on helping other people. Yeah. Yeah. But it comes with its, you know, like since then, I've actually done a lot more work about the sort of downside of living a life where you focus on help, helping other people. So I don't know if you've come across this concept of the wounded healer. No. It's quite a helpful one. Um, I'm actually doing a workshop uh, about it in um, I think it's in February in London. But it's um, basically the idea is that many people who get into the sort of helping or healing professions do so because of some kind of wound mm. which is you know kind of obvious to say really yeah um and actually that's not necessarily a bad thing but there's like a sort of there's potentially a dark element to it where you're so focused on helping other people that you sacrifice your own needs so yeah. you can find that a lot in, you know, a lot of the healing professions, the helping professions, like with doctors, mm. <clears throat> for example, I'm sure you've seen the sort of worrying uh, mental health stats about doctors these days. Obviously, that's to do with the system as well. But there's also something about what is it that drives people to get into these lines of work? What are the psychological patterns that, that can lead people to want to help people, but can also drive them to burnout in different ways? Mm. Mm. Um, and so what have you done about that in your time? Have you always tried to balance, you know, helping other people, which which can be, of course, a great way of healing? I mean, certainly in 12 step recovery, it's one of the key things that you that you arrive at at the end. It's like, you know, you need to yeah. devote, devote your life to helping others in order to fully heal and, and feel better about yourself. But exactly. of course, I, I can see exactly what you mean. I can get out of hand. And what what do you, what do you do? to make sure have you always been yeah. able to maintain your own mental health throughout all your work 
No, I, I mean, I've definitely uh, struggled uh, in different ways in my mental health. My sort of Achilles heel is my sleep. So basically, when I'm going through a period of uh, stress and there's different things that particularly stress me out, I really struggle with sleep. And then that leads to all sorts of other problems, you know, more anxiety and stuff like that. Um, I think the simplest thing is just really learning to prioritize your own self-care. And it is simple when I explain it like that. But in practice, it can be quite hard for people to do that because, uh, you know, it's not always second nature for people to prioritize that you might you might have learned when you're growing up that it's selfish to focus too much on yourself or uh different messages that we can absorb from our environment uh so for me that's just been a long and it's an ongoing journey of learning to say no um having better boundaries prioritizing my own self-care and just that, that sort of basic learning that if i'm feeling cared for and nourished i can actually be of much better service to other people i think that's like the crucial bit really i mean exhaustion can really make your sort of emotional regulation fly out of control can't it and yeah i know i mean i'm going to get on to asking you about about parenting which i know is a source of stress for me and so many others but yeah I, i know just with my own kids is that if I'm not rested or I'm not looking after myself, I'm much more likely to respond in a volatile way to their issues and their behavior, which is, uh, and obviously, you know, I feel like my role should be to do the opposite, to be the calming person in a situation where they're feeling delicate. And if you're not rested or you haven't like taken care of yourself, you're so much more likely to just snap or, or just say the wrong thing, aren't you? Yeah. Well, we have to think about parenting in the context of uh, like the modern uh, view, I guess, on parenting, where there is this feeling <clears throat> and uh, an idea that you have to give so much to your children. Mm-hmm. And that idea obviously exacerbates uh, the stress and, and the burnout. I think it does anyway. Mm-hmm. Like I do write about that in the book in terms of like the changing nature of our um, social and family dynamics where you know uh if you're in a family that has uh let's say uh 12 kids mm. i used to live next door to a family that had eight kids uh in london and uh you just can't give as much attention to each one so the kids kind of just fend for themselves actually mostly yeah i'm not saying it's easier to do that but we live in this age now where families tend to have less and less children and then there's extra pressure to take care of the few uh precious treasures that we've got And then a lot of the sort of modern uh, psychology around parenting about attachment and stuff. It's a good corrective to, I guess, like the cold Victorian model. But I feel like we've gone a bit the other way. Uh, And actually, you know, kids do need to learn at some point that the world outside of the family is not always going to respond to their needs and give them exactly what they want. And even though it's important for children to feel special inside the family environment, if they go out into the world and they and they really think that the world is going to treat them as special, they're, they're just going to be really disappointed. Mm. And we have like I have a chapter in the book about narcissism. We do see signs that there is a rise in narcissism and self-centeredness amongst uh, younger generations, which sounds a bit sort of judgy when you say it like that. But it makes sense in a world where 
you know the spotlight is always on the individual and the feeling that you've got to you know have your own platform and basically be loved by everyone it's just not realistic is it uh, i mean honestly what you're saying is so pertinent to my experience of being a parent and and um it's really getting that balance right is so delicate you know i i, mm. I grew up in a family of four with one parent so probably a lot of fending for ourselves in, in now of course you personally react to that because you might have painful memories about that i've got two children i really i work from home so i'm much more present in their lives than my mum was able to be and uh but you throw yourself so much into it and you you get yourself stressed out and exhausted first of all and you're constantly you've got some sort of low level guilt irrespective of how much you're putting in and all, but also I do think like you know like I I must I mustn't slag my son off because that would be an awful thing to do on a podcast. But kids don't like going to school, and I never liked going to school. But I asked my mum the other day, did I ever refuse to go to school? She went, no, of course you didn't refuse. You knew you had to go. When you talk about narcissism, a lot of kids you hear going, why should I have to go to school? And they don't buy it when you just say because that's just what you have to do they go but but why i don't i don't understand i mean it's it's awful they tell me what to do i can learn all this stuff at home on the internet anyway and it's just sort of like it's just a thought that my generation we just wouldn't have had and and i don't know what's right and what's wrong in some way i I quite respect it when my son says stuff like that so i think oh it's wonderful he's got an independence of thought and (laughs) but it's um yeah, I'm aware, and I often beat myself up about it. It's like if you've treated your children too special, then they think that they almost are entitled to live outside of certain like conventions that have just held society together for years. I mean, is that common? It is uh, very common, and uh, that was a really brilliant way of sort of making it concrete in your own family experience Mm. i can also really relate to that like i um my daughter fortunately most days goes to school without complaining but because of the work that i do and because of the number of families i've seen uh, with school refusers like chronic Mm. school refusers i have this like there's a little underlying anxiety in my stomach whenever she just says, oh, I've got a bit of a funny tummy this morning. I'm just like, oh, because I know what this can turn into. Yeah. But at the same time, I totally uh, relate to what you're saying in terms of like we want our kids to be independent thinkers and to question some norms. Yeah. And and the other thing I would add into the mix is, you know, it is true to say in my experience that the education system at least in this country, typically is just not really fit for purpose for what we now know about children's uh, needs. Mm. For example, um, my daughter's just gone into year one, so she's pretty early on in her education experience, but there's quite a big jump where now from having uh, much more opportunity to move around and to play, they're basically having to sit still for most of the day and they get stickers, right, for sitting still. Who can sit mm. the stillest? And the class is like a big thing. Yeah. And then you have to contrast that with the huge exponential rise in ADHD diagnosis and medication for kids as yeah. young as five and six. My my uh, quite strong opinion on that is young children are not designed to sit still 
in a classroom for long periods of time like you know we need to move and I often use the analogy of um, having a um, a pet like a dog right you dog needs to go for a walk uh, regularly otherwise it goes you know mental and children are exactly the same if they're being made to sit still for extended periods of time too young an age I just don't think that's conducive to um, well it's not conducive to a lot of things but particularly to mental health so it's a difficult one it's a really tricky one uh, and I think you know it's not easy to give simple advice on a podcast but I think everyone just needs to try and find their way like have pretty good boundaries and be as strong as you can be whilst honoring like actually listening to your children and what they're saying um well that takes us uh right into some of the key themes in your book i think you know uh this thing about the amount of you know diagnoses that young people now have um you know you you seem to feel generally that uh, a lot of this stuff is just a natural part of being a kid. And, and perhaps there's so much hyper awareness now about mental health and mental health conditions that we've gone too far into diagnosing young people. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, the, um, the comparison that I make in the book is between the sort of hypervigilance that we, we all had at the peak of COVID where we were so aware of this virus and we were so acutely aware of the symptoms that basically if anyone had the tiniest cough, even just a little rasp in the throat, it like created like, you know, real fear and panic. And I think it's similar with uh, mental health. We've actually become in a way hyper aware of mental health. And these diagnoses fly around the internet, fly around social media without much depth of understanding and what can happen is if a child or a young person or a parent you know this is true for grown-ups as well if you're noticing like something that seems a bit uh unusual maybe it's like feeling sad for a little longer than usual or there's there's a, a fear about something that carries on for a bit we become hyper vigilant about it and the hypervigilance can actually make the situation worst. Yeah. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be careful uh, about listening to our children and listening to what they're presenting to us, but it's the way that we listen that's really super important. And uh, in the book, I guess one of my main sort of points that I'm trying to make in the book is that actually a lot of the symptoms that children are experiencing say more about the world around them than it does about basically them uh because ultimately you know human beings just respond to the environment around us our brains and our nervous systems respond to the world around us and if the world is kind of not meeting our needs then our bodies will give us signals and it might be anxiety it might be extended periods of feeling low usually they're signs that the world isn't meeting our needs and the problem is main way that these problems are treated in in our society is by going and being told basically that you've got uh, something wrong with your brain chemistry and you need to take some medication mm-hmm. that's why we see such a um, an exponential rise in all different types of strong medications for children you know from obviously adhd medication to antidepressant medication and even uh, there was an article in the new york times not so long ago about a rise in um antipsychotic medication which is really strong medication for really young kids mm. so i guess I, I i worry about how we're treating uh those problems and i think there is a better way 
it's almost dystopian the idea of a, a world that's created this system that is so unnatural for human beings on a sort of spiritual and you know intellectual and an emotional level that um rather than look at the system we give pills to to people in order to make them fall into line um, absolutely and, and that it that is pretty dystopian it, it is worrying that that said you know uh, another thing that I've learned in recovery, one of the key things that in, in all therapy that you seem to be told again and again is, you know, you can't change the world around you. You can only change your responses to that world. So short of like the whole education system and indeed the capitalist system that, you know, creates our sort of environment and is often quite toxic. You know, we how much do we just tell our kids? Look, yeah, that I mean, I tell my kids that I don't agree with the way the school is run. And I tell them, look, I don't, I don't think this is great. I don't agree with it. And I think the reason is one is that's the truth. And second is, I kind of like the idea of showing them that I'm not just some. There isn't an adult world that can. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST. And up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Spires all together against the kids to kind of oppress yeah. them. I want them to know, listen, I get it. I don't, you know, uh, I didn't like school. In fact, it seems worse now because it's much stricter than when the, when I went, you know. Um, and so, yeah, it's a bit bollocks, but you've just got to kind of keep your head down and get on with it. And then I regret it because, like, they'll say, oh, but you've admitted this is bollocks. You, you say it's a load of shit, this school. So why do you insist on sending me back in? <laughs> do you know what I mean? And the truth is, I, I think to myself, well, I just want you to accept that there's a lot of shit going on in in school and throughout your life that just feels wrong or is stupid but you have to find a way of kind of adapting your reaction and getting through it somehow because we're not going to be able to change the whole bloody system we live in on our own um yeah it's yeah. a bit it's a bit kind of complicated that i suppose to explain to young kids but well the serenity prayer is yeah. like the ultimate kind of isn't it it's like the um uh to the wisdom to know the things i can control and the things I can't and the wisdom yes. to the difference between the two or something yeah, like yeah, that. And that's yeah. basically what I would try and encourage is get them to know like these are the some things that I can change. Mm. These are some things I can't change. And the and and the other element to that I would add from a mental health perspective is really just noticing how certain things in the environment do affect our moods and our um our well being. I think just as long as you know that. So if you know that, for example, going into a certain school 
when you come home, you might feel a particular way. Therefore, you might need to take extra measures of self-care or, mm. you know, it's just figuring out um, through trial and error how certain things make you feel. So when I pick my daughter up from school, um, I'm generally really curious, even though she's not always very open about it. But I'm very curious uh, about her state when she comes out from school. And, and I really want to try and help her to figure out why, you know, without necessarily blaming anything but someday she comes out she's over the moon and i really want to know oh, what what happened today that gave you that extra bit of energy and some someday she comes out and she's completely flat and exhausted and seems really down and i'm really trying to get her to try and make the connection between those things and i think that's mm. just helping them to develop self-awareness is a is a great gift i think absolutely yeah absolutely reading your own emotions i often just or recognizing them uh, something I don't think I did until I was in my 40s. In all honesty, I really don't think I ever recognised what I was feeling. So if I got angry, I would just act angry. And I wouldn't stop to think, is this healthy or is this, where's this coming from? Or is there anything I can do to stop this feeling? I'd just say, well, I'm angry now. So that's how I'll be behaving until this anger passes of its own accord. Um, yeah. and, and ditto for all of my other emotions. And it's uh, it's really hard and... Um, I hope, but I don't know whether they're encouraging this in schools, but I hope, you know, obviously professionals like yourself uh, are encouraging kids from an earlier age to just recognise feelings, know where they come from, and then maybe have some sort of control over them. Because a lot of us just don't pick up on that until, you know, in my case, and a lot of adults, and I don't, don't pick up on that stuff until you hit an absolute crisis and are forced to confront these things and learn about them. And you just sort of think a lot of mental health issues in adulthood could be solved if we were teaching these sorts of things you're talking about more extensively yes. to children from a very young age, right? Yeah, and I think it is getting better. Mm. Uh, so I know in my daughter's school, and I don't think this is unusual, they have this system. I forgot what it's called, but you basically uh, rate yourself according to different colours, mm. uh, different colours for different states. So I think and I'm getting this wrong, but there's like red for when you're feeling stressed or angry. And then there's a green for when you're feeling playful. And from what I can tell, that's quite a good non-shaming, uh, non-pathologizing way of getting them to think about their states. But I don't, in, in truth, I don't know how much attention they actually pay to that or whether it's a kind of lip service thing. I think yeah. generally there is more awareness and I think schools are getting better, but, but, Obviously, parents have to uh, not forget, I think, our responsibility to try and help our kids through this, which is difficult when you're busy and, you know, you're, you're coming home from work or you're working from home and yeah. making sort of just remembering. This is what I find. I don't know if you find this, but sometimes I've just got to remind myself, actually, that uh, my one of my most important roles is trying to be a, a good dad or a good enough dad and uh you know, sometimes with all the other things that pull you away in terms of your work and aspirations, it can be easy to forget that. I don't know mm -hmm. if you uh, relate to that at all. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, and also just the sheer practicality of the time available to all of us. So, you know, um, I guess like I think people have said, you know, the neoliberal world, the capitalist world, as much as it's given us all sorts of benefits, we live under like so much time pressure that to do all the things that you believe, you know, are required of you to be a, a really good parent. Is there practical space? I think a lot of people just feel that is there space to do that? Plus on top of that, hold down a career, 
practice self-care, perhaps maintain, a, a, you know, your relationship with your partner, your social life, all of these things, which, by the way, are, are just fundamental, not just to the practical things of putting food on table for your kids, but also, you know, maintaining your own sanity in your own life. It, it, you know, there's a lot of conflicting messages, isn't there, for parents? And um, achieving balance seems to be the biggest obstacle of all. Yes, well, um, I have these two chapters in the book. Um, one is about scarcity and one is about abundance. And essentially, uh, the main message is in what, as you described, the sort of neoliberal uh, capitalist world, it's basically based on and is driven by the core message that we are not enough and mm. that we need more things we need to yeah. achieve more things. We need to buy more things. We need to be more things to be enough, to ever achieve some sense of being okay. And that's just woven into every single element of our culture. And yeah. obviously that passes down through us as parents to our kids. And it can be quite subtle at times. So I've got a one section in one of those chapters, which is about redefining success, which I came across this study by Harvard, which I thought was quite interesting. They yeah. studied a load of parents and, and actually monitored their daily interactions with kids, with their own kids. And what they did is they measured what they said they wanted to be as parents in terms of uh, they wanted to raise caring, kind, compassionate children with like really good values. But then they contrasted that to the daily messages they were giving their kids. And they found that, the parents who said they wanted their kids to be kind and caring and compassionate, they hardly ever gave them those messages, but actually mostly they were giving them messages that were telling them about being successful and mm. doing more and being more. So we're so swimming in that whole ethos, aren't we, that it's quite hard to come out of it. But my like the simplest way of summarizing how to come out of it, I think, is just to remember and to tune into the feeling, which you can do for yourself and for your children, that you are enough. Mm. It's just one of the most powerful mantras for me. It's just remember that you are enough and you don't actually, you may not in this moment need anything else at all. You might just be okay in this moment. Um, communicating with kids is very difficult, Louis, um, for, for all of us, for kids of all ages, especially on you know, although it feels as if, you know, we've made such huge strides in talking about things like mental health or our feelings and emotions, kids will often still feel very, very uh, awkward about that. And there is a balance to be struck as well, isn't there, when you're communicating with kids about, you know, wanting to give them the right messages, wanting to check in with their feelings and so forth, but also just overwhelming, plain annoying them as well, <laughs> you know, Um I often call it in my case, I, I say I've got, I've got mental health Tourette's, you know, the kids can't walk around the house without me sort of trying to like have some sort of touchy feely conversation about the way they're feeling or how something impacted on them. And they're just like, dad, give it a rest. It's boring, you know, uh, which I'm sure it is, you know. Um, but listen, you've been doing this for years for a living. How do you communicate with kids uh, when they, they find it difficult to, to open up? Where's the balance? Well, when they find it difficult to open up, I am um, always focused on non-talking kind of interactions. Uh, I think we in Western world, we overemphasize talking and talking is good, 
But if you, uh, you know, just look uh, anywhere around the world, there's so many different forms of healing that don't involve any talking, you know, like singing, movement, dancing, yoga, exercise, etc., etc. So and obviously all the creative arts and the arts therapy stuff. So I kind of have quite a lot of trust after my years of experience in those nonverbal uh interactions now the only thing that can be frustrating for a parent is you really parents want to know exactly what's going on in their child's head <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and it's very frustrating when when their child won't just tell them and so my job often is like the interpreter I'm like interpreting between two different species that's what it feels like sometimes mm. and it's not that the child necessarily is always telling me what's going on for them, but I'm helping them to make sense of it, whether it's through something they've drawn or something they've created or some way that they've expressed it, or even just what I'm observing. Mm. Uh, so I guess that's uh, that's how I would approach it for, for kids who don't want to open up. And I would never ever like put pressure on. My job is usually the opposite, is like actually to take the pressure completely off. And sometimes, you know, um, when parents have been putting a lot of pressure on children to open up and talk and they clammed up, like actually therapy with those children, the first instances can often just be about doing something like playing chess. You know, mm. you're really just taking the pressure off and just trying to the most important thing is creating that sense of safety so that they can find a way to express themselves. Mm. But you would the end game would always be at some stage to talk directly with them, or is sometimes about about their feelings or what's going on, or sometimes is it enough to just make them feel safe, even if they're not being explicit about what's going on? That's a really good question. I think both are good uh, endpoints, and it's not necessarily an either or. So we live in uh, a society that values being able to talk about your feelings, so it's pretty handy. Uh, if you have the language and the capacity to be able to articulate how you're feeling in a, in a positive, I, I don't mean by positive that everything that you feel has to be positive, but it's how do you articulate your feelings in a context of a family or a work or a school in a way that's actually helpful and conducive to uh, better relationships, essentially. So that's definitely a skill that I would want to teach. But equally, I, I really do believe that that it's important to know that nonverbal forms of expression can actually help us to process feelings. Mm. Uh, sometimes I believe that is more helpful than talking. Uh, and as you said, rightly, like it is actually possible to help a child to feel safe, uh, which is the cornerstone of good mental health without any talking. Yeah. Like there's yeah. some really simple things from trauma treatments that just involve rhythm, like throwing a ball back and forth sounds yeah. like the most simple thing, but it entrains parts of our brains and nervous systems that help us to feel safe. That's such a nice thought and such a nice sort of, you know, tip to take away. Um, now, probably the last thing I want to ask you about was uh, resilience. It's funny because you write about resilience in the book and the overuse of the word resilience and I remember when we were looking at sort of secondary schools for our kids, you're looking at all the, the, the local kind of academies, which is now what state schools are, are, are called. And they all have a lot on their ethos and their values. There's always a section on the school website, which is funny as well to me. I mean, I went to school in the 80s. The idea that you would have asked anyone 
in my school about what the ethos of values. <laughs> Let's just be like, what? Well, just turn up and do your work and then go home and behave yourself or you'll go in detention, right? <laughs> Uh, the most over the, and what you do is you, you kind of can play a game of word bingo on these school websites. They're all interchangeable and there's a certain yeah. set of words, but easily the one that's used the most is resilience. And it almost seems to me that, you know, irrespective of what school you go and look at, resilience has become the number one buzzword for all of them. And that bothers me. Um, it really bothers me. And, and you because. Got, it bothers me because I think it, resilience is a sort of a fancier word for saying suck it up and get on with it, which I think exactly. is is opposed to the other messages that you get from school because they'll all as well make a big deal out of how compassionate they are when it comes to mental health. And I'm like, well, these things are kind of working against each other. However, as I see my kids go to school and struggle some days and not want to go in and, and get upset about things, obviously at times you do think, well, you know, you do need to be a little bit resilient. So, I don't know. I think you write about it much more eloquently than I'm putting it here. What are your thoughts on almost like the cult of resilience? Yeah, no, no, I thought you uh, articulated it really well there, actually, Sam. Um, I have in the book written a chapter called Questioning Resilience just because of the way I've seen it being used. Like you said, it's a bit of a cult. And it's interesting to hear you say it's like the word that you see mm. repeated over and over again. And it is very appealing. The idea of resilience, obviously, for a parent or a teacher at school is very resilient because basically we want kids just to be able to go into whatever the environment, deal with it and not complain because mm. that makes our lives easier. Right. Yeah. That's basically what resilience means in a nutshell. Um, but the reason I wanted to question it actually was based on a lot of my experiences going into schools and doing work both as a therapist and then teaching um, different programs, mindfulness programs and things. And I noticed that schools wanted me to come in and teach mindfulness to the kids who were deemed naughty. Basically, as a way of getting them to just fit in. Mm. so that they would st stop misbehaving, which obviously I understand uh, why a school would want that. But what gets missed in that whole cult of resilience is an, an understanding of why the kids might be acting that way, which can both be uh, a result of what's going on at home and various forms of childhood trauma. But it can also be to do with something that's actually happening in the school. And so resilience is focused on the individual adapting into the system. It doesn't leave any space for the what the individual is struggling with to be used as feedback to try and change and improve the system. Um, Louis, just lastly, does uh, working with kids who have been through trauma, is that a traumatizing experience for you? Um I've always imagined that it must be so rewarding working with kids, but I've always thought, oh, you know, I would just find it way too upsetting. Um, does it get like that? And how do you cope? Uh, you definitely can um, pick up on a lot of the sort of um, energy uh, from the clients that you work with. And I definitely do that. And I'm, I would say, you know, it's, I'm not great at dealing with it sometimes. I think that's part of the reason why I struggle with my own mental health sometimes and my sleep and things like that, especially if I take on too much. Uh, but again, it comes back ultimately to uh, self-awareness and the self-care that I was talking about at the start. Mm -hmm. So 
for example, personally, I've signed up to uh, quite a nice gym local to me that's got like a pool and a sauna and things like that. So I try and make sure most days I'm going there for a bit of chill out time. And that really uh, is quite important for me. So it's kind of that's that's a sort of simple way of explaining how I try and deal with it. Also, you have supervision. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you have a space with another person who you can sort of process some of the stuff that comes up in your work. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, the book is really wonderful. It picks up on so many fantastic themes that I think, you know, parents or whoever will find very useful. Um, And it's beautifully written too. It's called How the World is Making Our Children Mad and What to Do About It. Um, I'll put all the links in the notes that go with this show. Uh, Louis, thank you ever so much for sparing the time to talk to me. It's been really, really fascinating and enjoyable. Thanks, Sam. Thanks for having me. That was Louis Weinstock. His new book is called How the World is Sending Our Children Mad and What to Do About It. The links to buy it are in the show notes. It's a strong recommend from me, especially if you're a parent. Thanks for listening as always. And please remember to subscribe to The Reset if you don't already at samdelaney.substack.com as well as receiving these pods a day early and ad-free, there are newsletters and occasional video meetups and other stuff too, so give it a go. That's it for this week. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.